0: Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan.
1: And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories.
0: Please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And while our show is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can become part of our team with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support.
1: You're listening to John Schofield's instrumental version of Let's Go Get Stoned. A song originally popularized by Ray Charles and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Joshi Joe Armstead. The Mississippi native began her professional career as a vocalist, touring and recording as one of the original i behind Ike and Tina Turner. She later settled in New York City, where she began working with the legendary duo of Ashford and Simpson, who first found major success as the songwriting trio of Ashford, Simpson, and Armstead, when Ray Charles's recording of Let's Go Get Stoned became a number one hit. Soon after, Charles recorded their I Don't Need No Doctor, and Aretha Franklin hit the R&B Top 40 with Cry Like a Baby. After Ashford and Simpson went to Motown, Armstead relocated to Chicago, where she launched Giant Productions and established herself as one of only a handful of female record label owners and producers in that era. There, she scored top 10 R&B hits with Syl Johnson's Come On, Socket It To Me, Ruby Andrews' Casanova, Your Playing Days Are Over, Garland Green's Jealous Kind of Fella, and Carl Carlton's Drop By My Place, while also releasing her own records as an artist for Giant Records and later Stax Records. As a vocalist, she has worked and recorded with Diana Ross, Bob Dylan, Roberta Flack, Nina Simone, B.B. King, Quincy Jones, and Burt Bacharach. As a writer, she plays 16 songs on the R&B and Pop Charts. Her compositions have been recorded by a long list of artists, including James Brown, The Coasters, The Shirelles, Joe Cocker, Styx, Humble Pie, Joan Osborne, Ronnie Millsap, John Mayer, and others.
0: Well, we have another Patreon supporter that we're going to give a shout out today before, before the show actually officially starts. Very cool. Uh, it's uh, a guy named Scott Hodgin. Yeah. So, uh, Scott, we want to say thank you so much for supporting the show. And he's going to get to hear some cool bonus material from this very episode.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, Joshy has actually been known by several names. Uh, Joshy Armstead, Joe Armstead, Joshy Joe Armstead. She's yep. even used the name Dina, which doesn't seem connected to any of those <laughs> things. Um, so you might look and go, well, what the heck? Well, how, how, why is she written and recorded under all these different names? Well, guess what? We're not going to tell you. It's also not going to be in this episode because right. it's bonus content for our uh, Patreon subscribers who have subscribed at a at a certain level or above. And um, yeah, as uh, as Paul mentioned, there our Patreon page, which is. Uh, patreon.com slash songcraftshow is a place where those who um, choose to uh, help support us financially get some extra goodies, and that's one of them. So, yep. uh, if you want to hear that extra content, you can uh, go join our Patreon page, or even if you just want to go uh, make a pledge just because you love the show, then uh, we appreciate that. We're, we're growing this thing um, kind of an organic, ground-up kind of way. We've yep. got a handful of
0: patrons who, who help support what we do, and we sure do appreciate them. And these stories are fun. Uh, you know, this is an infectious personality. There's lady has this yeah. this laugh that she has when yeah. she tells a story
1: so you know you could say hey let's sit here and talk about Joshy armstead or let's hear joshie armstead
0: i say let's do that
1: all right Joshy, welcome to songcraft
2: thank you for having me
1: yeah we're so we're so excited to be
0: talking to you today this is great Now, you were born in Mississippi in the mid-1940s, and I understand that your mother was a minister, which seems unusual for a woman in that era. Talk about what sort of influence your mom and the church had in shaping you and your musical instincts.
2: Well, because I think my grandfather was a bootlegger and a gambler, (laughs) and most of the family were good-time party people, I think my mother, I was thinking about that the other day, I think she decided that that wasn't the life that she wanted.
3: Yeah, right.
2: And, yeah, and so she uh, uh, began to go to church, and she said she told me she had visions and uh, that the Lord had spoken to her and said he wanted her to carry his word out among the people. Hmm. And uh, she told vivid stories about this and that she dreamed of seeing herself in a long black robe with her arms outstretched as she was talking. Uh, So she studied the only church actually at that time who would ordain um, a woman happened to be in Yazoo City, and that was the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Yeah. She was ordained, uh, and uh, she served as a minister there for many, 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 many years, and she used to travel. Uh, She took me with her. I sang in those churches, and so we were kind of like a team.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, obviously for a lot of... um, musicians, they, they sort of emerge from the dynamic between, you know, the sacred and the profane, so to speak, kinda of church music and, and secular music. And you know, in addition to church music, you were introduced to, to blues at some point along the way and to R and B music. How were you exposed to, to those sounds, you know, as a preacher's kid and, and how did your mother feel about you singing non church music? Well, as I
2: said, my grandfather was a bootlegger and a gambler and cousins owned Cafes and and uh, juke joints.
4: Right, right.
2: So I heard that music and it resonated with me as well as the uh, the spirituals that we used to sing. Yeah. So uh, that was my background. You know, kids soak up everything. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And as far as 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 mama, in terms of she didn't she didn't preach fire and brimstone. Right. And that you gonna die and go to hell.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
2: Uh, She loved her family. She was always around, as they were partying and doing their thing. And uh, um, so I didn't get any condemnation. Yeah. Because I liked that, those songs, and I would sing those as well as the others.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
2: um, I was free to do what I wanted
3: to.
0: Hmm. Well, and in, in addition to singing in the churches, you, you found some opportunities to sing in clubs. And I've read that one of your first experiences singing in a club was with Bobby Blue Bland. How did that come about?
2: Well, Seattle um, City had a very popular nightclub called the Silver Slipper. And all of the blues artists would play the Silver Slipper. And um, I was out of school by this time, and I was singing with a little band. We were bad it was
4: terrible.
2: <laughs> so everybody knew I was singing. Right. And this particular night, Bobby Bland was playing the Silver Slipper. And it must have been in August. I remember it being so hot and sweaty. And that's when you had the best time, and everybody was <laughs> dancing. And it was, oh, it was great. Right. So I don't know how I got on the stage with a. Somebody egged me on or asked Bobby or told Bobby there was a singer in the house or what have you. But Bobby was very gracious, Mm. and they called me up to sing. And that was it. I was hooked
1: from that day on. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Right. That's amazing. Well, by 1961, you were singing professionally as an Iket behind Ike and Tina Turner. Um, and at the end of that year, the Iketts released a single called I'm Blue, the Gong Gong song, which was a top 20 pop hit and a top five R&B hit on the Billboard charts. How you ended up joining Ike's backing group and, and how that song in particular came together.
2: Ike Turner as a teenager, uh, and my sister, still in her teens, were married. Oh, okay. I think she said Ike was seventeen and she was nineteen. Wow. <laughs> the older woman.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: So many, many years passed. The marriage did not last. Um, They had one daughter together. Right. And um, he was a musician then. Hmm. So uh, they always kept in touch. And, of course, he left Mississippi um, and moved to St. Louis. Right. And that story is is widely known, too. And met Tina and... Uh, began to establish um, um, the Ike and Tina Turner Review. Yeah, and so they already had a hit, and they were playing in Jackson, Mississippi. Well, I called my sister and invited her to the show, hmm. and we were supposed to go to the show that night, but the weather was so bad in Mississippi; it it, it poured, right. it rained terribly, and we just didn't go. Hmm. So, uh, in the meantime they talked again and, and my sister told him of, that I was singing with a little band around town. Right. And that morning I remember my mother shaking me saying, Get up, baby, somebody's here to see you mm. And it turned out to be Ike Turner.
4: Huh. Wow.
2: Ike had driven with his um band leader at that time, um to Yazoo City to hear me because he needed one more girl to complete the IKETS. Oh. Right. And so I auditioned for him early that morning at the Silver Slipper. Um, <laughs> the only other place with a piano besides the churches. <laughs>
3: so, <laughs> right. not, not a lot of choices. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the owner of the Silver Slipper was very gracious and he opened the club early that morning and I sang for Ike. And um, that was it. He told my mother that he wanted to take me on the road
0: with him. Wow. Man. And and by the way, for our listeners, I mean, early in the morning is not exactly when you want to be singing as a <laughs> singer, right?
2: Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> Especially for an important audition. Right. Like, oh, I just woke up. Shaking out of bed to, yeah. to perform. <laughs> Let me show you my range. <laughs>
2: Well, whatever it was, I did okay because I left there with Ike Turner.
1: Wow.
2: Ike and Turner. That's amazing.
1: So, how did I'm Blue come together? I understand, I know that song's credited to to Ike, but I understand that you might have had a a hand in its creation.
2: I did, and that was my introduction to, you know, really the fundamentals of songwriting. Hmm. Uh, We happened to uh, be riding with Ike. I think he must have had the idea that he wanted to record the Icats. Right. And so we was in his car and we began to sing together and, you know, things started coming together and he had this melody and uh it was background heavy and I guess so for um, a girls group. Right. And I remember giving him some lyrics, uh and that's how it came together yeah riding in his car from one gig to the other (laughs) and we recorded it in new orleans so that was my introduction to uh songwriting ike would call me uh at other times and hum melodies and i would give him words and so forth so i uh I began to understand the structure of, you know, how to do a song, how to craft a song.
3: Right, right. So, of,
2: of course, I didn't get any credit for it.
3: Yeah, yeah. But
2: it it gave me confidence to know that I could put together, you know, create something
3: right
0: original. Sure. Yeah. Well and then you guys were touring together. You were still a teenager. So, you know, in addition to learning kind of the basics of songwriting, I'm sure there was a ton that you learned about the business and, and about touring uh, that sort of stayed with you throughout your career, I'm imagining.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that was a you know, that was that was pretty uh intense in terms of having to learn and pick up things and and I was always inquisitive. I always asked him questions um sometimes he would even let me count the money mm. and he taught me things, so it was um I could say uh, basically uh my degree right <laughs> so right so to speak, into the business
0: right. Yeah. And, you know, after all that experience, in in, uh, late 1962, you left Icantina, though, and you landed in Los Angeles for a little while. What prompted you to depart uh, such a steady gig?
2: Well, to be honest, I never made any money. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I left Yazoo City, I didn't have any money, so I had to uh, do what they call draw on your salary. Mm Right. And... I call it almost like sharecropping because at the end of the week, I was in a deficit.
3: <laughs> right, right, right.
2: <laughs> I always owe that.
3: Right. like, so, I right. just worked all week. How do I owe you
2: money? <laughs> Man. Listen, that's a precursor for, you know, the whole music business as right. I saw it and experienced it.
3: Yeah. But... Yeah.
2: um. I didn't after a while I knew there was there was no opportunity for me except uh you know being with Ike and Tina Turner and I'm not into that in terms of the uh facade the, mm. the, you know if it's not real if I'm not making money if I'm not growing or you know Uh, expressing myself to the best of my ability, there's no need for me to be there.
1: Yeah, Yeah, kind of a dead end almost. So
2: uh, I walked away. Wow. I mean, I was scared to death. Yeah. But I just, you know, I I knew that I could not really grow and um, have the opportunities that I wanted. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: And so I left.
0: How old were you when you left?
2: I think I might have been... Twenty
1: at the time, nineteen or twenty. Wow, well, wow. you know, Ike, Ike is one of those guys who was exceptionally talented and contributed so much to to R and B and rock and roll history. But it's it's been so uh, overshadowed by his his reputation for violence, you know, with Tina and that kind of thing. Was was that something that you were subjected to on the on the road, or was that something that they kept behind closed doors?
2: Well, he mostly kept it behind closed doors. I never saw him hit her. Yeah. I saw some of the aftermath. You know, right. she'd have a little busted lip or something. Hmm. and And uh, I saw how he could go from really being jovial to being full of rage. Yeah. yeah. In seconds. Hmm. Uh He had a terrible temper, but he always paid people on time. Um. You know, he he was very serious about the music. We could we were watching this uh, thing form right in front of our eyes, you know, with his with him at the helm. Yeah. Um it it was amazing. But yeah, it's unfortunate that his uh, abusive behavior happened to overshadow his uh creative
3: yeah. Yeah, ability. For sure. Yeah, yeah.
2: You know what I really think, and I've said this a couple of times, I think Ike Turner might have been undiagnosed bipolar.
0: Hmm. Huh, interesting. Yeah, but that wasn't a diagnosis that that was really, you know, thrown around in those days.
2: In those days, no. Yeah. Absolutely not.
0: Interesting
1: you know as paul mentioned when you left uh, icantina you you landed in uh, in la for a while and during your time in los angeles you recorded a, a handful of records including uh, never try to love no more Ultimately, ended up in New York, hustling as a songwriter, kind of on that Brill Building scene. Uh, tell us why you left California for the East Coast, and and what the songwriting scene was like in those early days in New York.
2: Los Angeles was so spread out, and and I, I think I expressed this before to somebody. I said it took forever to get anything done.
3: <laughs> it's and, still that way. <laughs> <laughs>
2: My family that had left Mississippi ended up in Brooklyn. Right. So I was working at the 5-4 Ballroom, and Luther Dixon happened to come into that ballroom, and I had met Luther Dixon when I was with Ike and Tina. Hmm. And at that time, Luther had been given a deal with Capitol Records to distribute his own label called Ludix. Right. And he was looking for artists and he asked me if I would like to go back to New York with him and I jumped at the opportunity <laughs>
4: yeah. knowing
2: that I had family in Brooklyn. Sure. So that's how I got to New York. Right. I went over to the Capitol Records uh, building where Luther had an office. I began to meet musicians and singers and writers and bad energy, and somebody told me about, you know, the publishers and the the C&D and the Brill building. Oh, it was, wow, it was fascinating, and just the pace that I needed. It was very fast-paced, so I just got caught up in it. I loved it. Uh, I'm a quick study, as they say. I uh, uh, started writing with, with different people one of my first writing partners was a guy named robert mosley mm. and robert was a co-writer on all right okay you win
4: mm. okay yeah
2: all right okay you win i'm in love with you anyway he was a prolific uh uh pianist and a songwriter right and we wrote some things together which incidentally um there was another writer's name attached to it by the name of Morris Levy.
1: <laughs> he's he's kind of a notorious character in the music industry.
2: Oh, yes. And, <laughs> and I have the distinction of having written songs with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I don't think anybody can remember exactly what Morris did on some of those songs. <laughs> Yeah, you you give Morris the
1: uh, writer credit to keep from getting your knees broken. I think that's what he did on those songs. Uh, so,
2: so you asked the question, what was it like in those days? Right. You know, it was. Hey, it really was a a, a learning process. Yeah. Like no other. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Right. Right. Uh, Well, the the first time we see your name appear as a songwriter on the Billboard charts came in 1965 when uh, Maxine Brown fell just shy of the pop top 40 with One Step at a Time. That's a song that you wrote with the legendary team of Ashford and Simpson. And, in fact, that was the first time that Ashford and Simpson had hit the top 100 as songwriters themselves. So, you know, really it started out as as a three-person team of Ashford, Simpson, and Armstead in the early days. Um, Talk about how you first met and began working with Nick and Valerie.
2: Well, I began working with Valerie first. I met Valerie at a publisher's office. I think the publisher's name was Pinkus Music,
4: Hmm.
2: uh, with a guy named Gregory Carroll. Right. And she sat down at the piano, and I was blown away with her talent, with the feel that she had. Valerie has a gospel feel. It touched me to my core. Hmm. And... Of course I jumped on her like, Hi, how are you? I'm Joshie.
3: <laughs> right. And
2: you know, um, um what's going on and do you write often and where do you live and everything I could ask her. Anyway, I was all over Valerie and we right. changed numbers and I kept calling, I call all day, talk whatever.
4: <laughs> right, right.
2: Because I wanted to work with her. Yeah. So uh, we started working together, and we started doing backup together. Nick at that time was not in that particular writing pool. Right. He was doing something else. And finally, uh, I met Nick. Right. I have to say that I saw them as an act hmm. in Brooklyn, at a theater in Brooklyn, as Valerie and Nick. Right. They had recorded for Glover Records, I think. Hmm. But anyway, after meeting Valerie and starting to work with her, uh, I met Nick again. Nick came back in the fold and All I right. tell you, listen, you could not beat the three of us as uh um uh as singers. Hmm. Yeah. That harmony that we could put together was was hair raising.
3: Well, wow.
2: So when Nick came back, of course he was welcomed and we had a great time and we just started writing together.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the first time that, that they hit the top 20 as writers on the R&B chart was another song that the three of you wrote together, Never Had It So Good. Only once in a lifetime, the right girl
4: comes along. And when you find her, brother,
3: you better hang on. Could I leave my baby? No, I don't think I could, because i never had.
0: I think a lot of people might be surprised to know that the artist singing that song is future country music star Ronnie Millsap, who began his career as an R&B performer. Tell us about how that one came together.
2: Maxine Brown and Ronnie Millsap happened to have been signed to Scepter Records. Right. And Ashford Simpson Armstead was signed to Scepter Records Publishing Arm. Hmm. And that's how we were able to get those two terrific artists yeah. uh, get our songs recorded by them when basically we were unknown as writers. Right. So you are correct. Uh, Ronnie uh, started off in R&B. Uh, n- you know, nobody knew he was white. <laughs> he sounds so black and right? gorgeous. You know, and uh, that's how we got a chance to work with them. And our songs were submitted and seriously considered.
1: And they were pretty good songs. Well, you and, and Nick and Valerie continued to have success in 1965 and 1966 with uh, cuts like My Heart Belongs to You by the Shirelles and the duet I'm Satisfied by Chuck Jackson and Maxine Brown. Um, it seems like you guys were you know, writing pretty regularly together in that era. Describe a, a typical day in the life as a, as a working songwriter at that time.
2: Uh, Florence Greenberg owned the uh, building across the street from Shepter Records and There was a piano and a room set up for us, and we had keys. So we would get together every day around noon, you know, like going to the office, except we didn't have the attaché case or anything like that. <laughs>
3: right.
2: Uh, and we would sit, and we had such a spark as singers, and we'd hum melodies, uh, sometimes we come in with titles. Um, you know, sometimes you might have a little poem. I've had little poems that we ended up doing music to. Yeah. Um, And that's how we worked.
3: Hmm.
2: Regular, every yeah. day.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: At the end of the week, too, because our contract was based upon per song that we would receive in advance, we had to, to pump it out. You know, in order to uh, to have a salary or to get a check at the end of the week, we had to come up with some songs.
1: Right, right. <laughs> the pressure was on.
2: The pressure was always on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and well, the
2: real pressure is to come up with a
1: hit. Exactly. Right. Not know? just a song. <laughs> well, and, and you guys did. In 1966, you and, and Nick and Valerie had your first number one R&B hit when Ray Charles topped the charts with his version of Let's Go Get Stoned.
4: Now wait a minute.
3: You know my baby She won't let me in I've got a few
4: pennies I'm gonna buy myself a bottle of gin And then I'm gonna call my buddy On the
3: telephone and say
1: how you guys came up with that song and how Ray ended up getting his hands on it.
2: If I remember correctly, that was totally Nick's idea. Mm.
1: Hmm.
2: Cause when I heard him say those words, I was ready to go and 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 go uptown to the three for one joint.
3: Right. You and thought it was yes. a suggestion, not a song <laughs> title. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> That's great.
1: Reach <laughs> <Meet> you downstairs <laughs>
3: So he
2: wanted to sit down and write it, and I think it came out, and this was forty five minutes it was over. Wow. wow I' have to tell you this, it was not written at Scepter in that little building where Florence had given us the room, right It was written at Atlantic Records.
4: Hmm. okay,
2: okay, the plot thickens <laughs> uh, before we got before we got with Scepter Records is the part of uh, Flo Mar. Blue Publishing, Amit Erdogan had given the, the three of us an opportunity to write at Atlantic. He opened and offered us the conference room, which had a piano in it, and we did the same thing. We would go every day and write. Wow. We compiled maybe five, six, seven songs, and Amit Erdogan called in Neshwi and Jerry.
4: Well,
2: wow. To hear these songs that we had written. Well, wow. And Nashley and Jerry were not impressed.
3: <laughs> okay. <laughs> so
2: I knew where we could go to take them. Right. I had met Florence Greenberg through Luca Dixon. And so the timing was just right. We went over to Scepter, um, Ed Sharon. Uh, not Ed, Sharon. What is it's name? Anyway, um, um, he had just signed with Scepter a co-deal code to handle their publishing, and we played those same songs for him. Right. And he signed us. Uh. So, ironically, he submitted the song Back to Atlantic. Hmm. And it was Ed that got um, um, that song to the Ray Charles camp. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Th- that song, along with so many others of, of your catalog, w- would go on to be re-recorded by so many other artists. I mean, Let's Go Get Stoned was recorded by Manfred Mann and James Brown and Joe Cocker. And then when, when you and Ashford and Simpson scored again in 1966 with Ray Charles's release of I Don't Need No Doctor, I mean, it was a minor hit for Ray, But then that song was covered by a bunch of hard rock bands. You got like Humble Pie and Great White and Wasp. What do you think it is about I Don't Need No Doctor that attracted a bunch of metal guys to cover it?
2: Listen, it's hard to say.
3: <laughs>
0: All
2: I can say is that I am very, very happy that uh, it was picked up like that because, as you know, uh, that means more revenue for the writer.
0: Yeah, it never hurts, right? Yeah. If you're If
1: you're <laughs> a songwriter, people covering your songs is nothing but a good thing.
3: <laughs> That's a good thing, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, at the tail end of 1966, Aretha Franklin had an R&B hit with "Cry Like a Baby," another song that you wrote with Nick and Valerie. No! And knows except my pillow at night, All oh, through the day, how
2: many tears I have to fight? Oh, when
3: I'm alone, yeah, I just cry like a baby. I cry like a baby. Oh, oh, oh yeah.
1: Um, and Ray Charles and Aretha were, of course, both. Uh, Atlantic artists, and that label was the top of the heap in terms of of R and B in that era. Um, by that point, once you guys had had kind of had some success, you know, at Scepter, were you writing with specific artists in mind, saying, "Hey, let's let's try to write something for Aretha," "Let's try to write something for Ray," or were you still just kind of cranking out songs and, and letting your publisher kind of figure out what to do with them?
2: we were just cranking it out.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: you know, and. And, uh, in fact, we were surprised that Ray Charles is doing Let's Go Get Stoned. <laughs> right. I mean, we went out and celebrated. Yeah. Uh, no, we were not specifically doing it uh, in terms of writing for an artist. Right. That would have been an assignment, mm. you know?
3: Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. And
2: uh, we didn't have any assignments at the time, just... Give us good songs, the best songs
0: that you have. Right, right. You know, and not only were you guys writing a lot in this era, but I understand that you, Nick, and Valerie sang backup on Bobby Hebb's hit recording of "Sunny," which was a big hit in
3: 1966. Sonny, thank you for the truth you let me see. Sonny, thank you for the facts from A to B. Funny. One so I love you.
0: you know, you mentioned that the three of you had, um, a pretty special connection when it came to singing together. Were you personally actively pursuing a singing career during that time?
2: No, uh, uh New York was just so full of everything.
0: Yeah.
3: You
2: know, um, uh, all of a sudden, I'm getting called to sing backup hmm. on some of your major artists, from hmm. Lena Horn to Harry Belafonte, and eventually uh, um, James Brown and Bob Dylan and Roberta wow. Flack and yeah. Diana Ross. I mean, wow. <laughs> oh,
3: <right. So> at <laughs> that,
2: at, yeah, at that time, I guess everything was on the table. Yeah. Had a contract happen for me or had I met anybody that said, hey, we want to really, uh, uh, you know, take you in the studio, of course I would have been open to it. Yeah. But I I call it, in my writing, odd jobs. I just did everything. If they say, do, can you do this? I say yes. Uh, right, right, and right. <laughs> Those were my attempts at it. So.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, by 1967, Ashford and Simpson left New York for a successful career with Motown in Detroit. Um, tell us why you didn't go with them and how that writing trio ultimately ended up as a duo.
2: Well, our contract was up at SEPTA, and I think Ed left uh, uh, SEPTA Records as a co-publisher, and so that ended, and, and uh, we weren't talking every day.
4: Right. And
2: it must have been Nick who found the um, uh, the hookup with motel. Right. And I think he thought too that splitting the money three ways actually. <laughs> <Because necessary>.
0: right. <laughs> right right right. <No>, simple math
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> to be honest with you right but uh they had been partners before and i felt like a third wheel a lot of times hmm. so and as you know they ended up being married so you know uh they went to motown without me and of course it was devastating i was heartbroken i was Almost destroyed because I loved my partners. I loved the way yeah. we sound. I loved our camaraderie. It was just wonderful. Now I'm on my own again. Mm. What am I going to do? Yeah. So that's what happened. They went on to Motown without me. I think Nick found that deal
3: yeah.
2: and they signed it without me.
0: Well, you did figure out what to do next. You relocated to Chicago and you continued to have hits with other co writers including Syl Johnson um, and and one of those hits went to number 12 in the R&B chart it was a song you guys wrote together called Come on Socket to me
3: you
4: got to get up!
2: Idea because if I remember correctly, at the time, Aretha, uh, what was it where she just kept repeating, socket to me, socket to me, socket to me? Respect. Respect, yes. And Phil, that was his idea. I want to do a phone call, socket to me. So <laughs> I went to Phil's house one day and we sat in his basement. Actually, it was his attic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Come out to the the attic. That's right. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) And we wrote the song. Yeah. And I was finished with it. It's yours. You know? Yeah. I was happy. I was happy that Phil was like that.
1: Yeah, just yeah. give
2: him the song, and now he's gonna run with it. He's gonna do what's sure. necessary He's gonna find the money and record it. The whole nine yards.
1: Yeah, yeah. So. Well, that uh, same year that uh, "Come On, Suck To Me" was a hit, uh, you also scored a top ten R&B hit with Ruby Andrews' cut of "Casanova." Your playing days are over. Milton Middlebrook, who was that?
2: Milton Middlebrook is a character that does not exist. Hmm. It happened to have been Mel Collins' uh, pen name, his pseudonym. Okay. I was so upset that he added that name hmm. to the um, uh, to the the writer's credit for Casanova. Yeah. And one of the reasons. Happened to have been that was the first song that I penned after the breakup with Ashford and
4: Simpson. Right,
2: it meant a lot to me to have a song the caliber of Casanova uh, that I wrote.
3: Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I say
2: that in terms of I'm not the best musician, best musician, I hardly come close to being a musician, (laughs) the music. Is my week is in.
4: Right.
2: I can sit down and do what Bonnery calls, uh, you know, three chords and come up with a story and you got a song. I can sit down and do those three chords and I can stomp out a groove too to give you an idea of where I want the rhythm. Right. But I need good musicians around me and Valerie was excellent in picking up, uh, um, you know, and taking it someplace else too right. to open your imagination yeah yeah. but Casanova happened to be in the first one that I wrote musically lyrically uh alone
1: yeah mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, it's particularly galling to have somebody else's name uh, on there when you know you did it all yourself
2: it was devastating it yeah. still is because you know you can't you uh, from with copyright law you can't take it off
0: yeah You've always turned out to be a real example of, of strength in this industry you know uh, when in 1968 you know you scored a top 30 r and b hit as both writer and artist with a stone good lover
3: I hmm. may not dress the best I
0: What's interesting is that record was released on the Giant label, which was your own company with Melvin Collins, and, and I point that out because there, there weren't many women producing records or owning record labels in the 1970s, but there you were making it happen, and it's interesting. I think back to the example of your mother um, as a minister and, and the work she did and to become a minister in that era, and, and I wonder what kind of challenges did you face as a woman in a male-dominated industry?
2: Well, it was hard. It was hard in a way until they realized that you are the one that's going to sign the check.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the power of the pocketbook. <laughs> yes. I <laughs>
2: like that. Wow, that sounds like a song to me. <laughs> anyway, um, I guess you know that I Turner University was really a very good. Uh, formative learning place for me right and usually if you're coming up with something good that's musically uh musically good people will listen so if i had a good song the the artist is not going to challenge me about i don't want to sing this because you're a woman
3: right yeah
2: certain musicians because i was limited in my musical knowledge in in terms of uh of uh, relating to them what it was that I wanted would, you know, rebel and want to be nasty. And that's when it comes in. I'm talking about they realize that I'm also going to pay them.
3: (laughs) Right, right.
2: So uh, being, yeah, being one of the first, I never thought of it like that. You just do what you do.
4: Right. Uh,
2: And you look back on it and say, wow. (laughs)
3: <laughs> but other than that,
2: I you know, I never thought about it right. and I never took the insults or the put downs uh in a way that it was going to stop me.
1: So mm.
2: yeah. I just kept going.
1: Just kept doing it. Well, and at the same time that you're, you know, you're running a record label, you're producing records, you're continuing to record your own material including the charting single I've been turned on and the northern soul classic I feel an urge coming on. Um you were also Collaborating with with others, still finding success on the charts as a songwriter with songs like Jealous Kinda of Fella, which is an absolute soul classic that was a top 20 pop hit, top five R and B hit for Garland Green in 1969. Well, let me explain before you say anything. Us about that song.
2: Well, Garland brought me that song. First of all, I heard Garland, and I told uh, Melvin that I thought I could get a hit with him because hmm. he has what I
3: uh, a
2: pleading quality that women love in a man's voice.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: And so Melvin approached him. And I think Gollum came by one day, and he knew who I was from the the other records and things that had been happening. I think he was um, really excited. But it was taking me a while to come up with something for him. So Gollum came by one day with this track and a few words, and the words were, What a day. I think I'll call my baby today. And that was it,
3: <laughs> right
2: so, and left it there. I listened, and I listened, and I put myself in that track, and I had to come up with a concept uh I had to do something, and I came up with the the storyline,
3: yeah,
2: of him apologizing for having been violent the night before and slapping somebody
3: right
0: right. <laughs>
2: And it is background-heavy, too, right? which
0: is my forte. Yeah, It's, it's amazing when, when you, some, you know, somebody hands you like a little grain of sand and says, Hey, build me a beach. <laughs> <laughs> build a sandcastle. I'm sure islands. you guys
3: have been there. <laughs> uh, a time or two, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, in 1970, Carl Carlton hit number 12 on the R&B chart with your song Drop By My Place, which you wrote solo. Um, and then that same yeah. year, you sang the soprano part in the chorus behind Diana Ross on Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which was written and produced by Ashford and Simpson. Everything's coming full circle here.
3: Just remember what I
0: Continuing to work with Nick and Valerie, though you were well established in Chicago, did you spend much time around the Motown scene?
2: Not really. No, not really. I think I went to the operations of the the Motown building once. Mm. Um, It was always in the studio with uh, Nick and Valerie. Right. So, no, I didn't have any interaction or any change with. Interchange with anybody at Motown itself.
0: I mean, you know, there are certain things now that, in retrospect, they have this kind of magic. You know, words like Motown or the Brill Building. Uh, you know, at the time, did Motown carry that kind of magic, or was it kind of like, oh, it's just another company?
2: Oh no, they were the catch me out. <laughs> Motown was <laughs> it. Right. Motown had what you would call a, I mean, a musical factory. Yeah. It was talent everywhere and especially those arrangers mm. especially those guys that rhythm section
3: yeah, yeah yeah, those
2: guys could put stuff in the pocket you know what i'm saying they yep. had the groove down they had the sound down no 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 they were authentic yeah yeah you know and to this day now i listen to some of the northern soul stuff and some of the things that independent labels like we had we were trying to create but in my opinion i thought the motown sound and the motown era was slick it was polished right it was um it was where i would have preferred to be i do believe that my songs would have been
1: a lot different In, in late 1972, Valerie Simpson released a record as a solo artist called Silly Wasn't I, which she wrote with, with you and Nick, and that fell just shy of the R&B Top 20. I
3: believed in you, thought
1: what you said. That record was kind of a a return to, you know, the Ashford and Simpson and Armstead name on a record, but it was also, that same era was kind of a return to New York from Chicago for you. Uh, Why did you decide to to relocate and and return to um, New York after you'd kind of carved out a successful spot for yourself there in Chicago?
2: Well, let me clarify. First, that silly wasn't I was a part of that Scepter Records and uh never had it so good and uh, uh one step at a time hmm,
1: that an song, early song. Was from that era okay i see yeah. so they kind of brought that brought that one back right yeah yeah
2: absolutely um uh, but what was happening in chicago after a while was very difficult uh it's difficult to work with people you know are stealing from you mm, yeah uh, you know it was a lot of bickering and backstabbing and just infighting that kills creativity. Right. So I left. Mm. The situation is not conducive to being creative and, um, you know, uh, an atmosphere where you want to work, where you're being productive. If that's not happening, I'm out of there. Mm. I'm gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and once you were back in New York, you know, you appeared as a backup singer on several records and some really notable things, including Bob Dylan's single, George Jackson. As a songwriter, what did it mean to get the chance to work closely with a guy like Bob Dylan? And did you guys have, you know, any conversations or a relationship that was sort of like, you know, songwriting peers, or were you kind of just there to, to, to do that job?
2: It was one of the most eye-opening and great lessons that I took away from working with this man without basically having a conversation with him. I just watched him. That session was booked with about 12 to 15 musicians Hmm. and the singers there at the same time. Usually we would go in and overdub, and sometimes you never even saw the artist. Right. Bob had us all there, and he had all these musicians, and they began to play the song. And Bob Dylan began eliminating them one by one (laughs) until he was down to four, maybe five pieces. I think it was four pieces. And what I, uh, I took away from that, everybody who came in to show their greatness, and how cool they were, and how well they could play, and playing all over everything, they ended up out of the door.
3: Wow, all <laughs> right.
2: Bob wanted something simple. He wanted a feel, a certain feel, and he got it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Leon Russell was on that session, too.
0: Did Leon get to stay, or did Leon get sent home?
2: No, Leon is on the track.
0: Okay, good, good, good. I was like, please don't send Leon <laughs> <Yeah>. home. <laughs> right.
2: uh-uh, no, 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 no. Leon's smarter than that. <laughs> he knows. He knows and what he's doing. He, he was smarter than that. <laughs> yeah. He stuck to whatever uh, figure he came up with, and yeah. and it was simple and meaningful, and the, that track today is so uh, I love it. Mm. Yeah, it reaches me. It touches me, and then it's simple.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's
2: very simple, and Bobby was always time in talking about what is very prevalent and relevant today—the killing of black men.
1: Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unfortunately, that song is is no less relevant now than it was at the time. Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, Motown, and they kind of had that polished uh, thing down, and and you know, maybe because I'm a, a Tennessee native, I've always been. Uh, Kind of partial to the Stax sound myself because it was a little, little greasier, a little funkier, and and uh, you know I, I'm, I'm still big, polished. Yeah, still, <laughs> right, right. Still
3: polished. <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, I mean you you actually got signed to the Stax label as a as an artist, producer, and songwriter in the in the early to mid '70s, and and released a handful of fantastic records on their gospel truth imprint including stumbling blocks step and stones what took me so long which is a great record Um, And that's, again, a song that you wrote uh, solo. Tell us about your experience with with Stax Records.
2: I uh, went in the studio with Valerie and uh, some wonderful musicians and did a demo for Al Bell and sent it to him. And he gave me a wonderful deal as a writer, Mm. as a producer, and as an artist. Mm -hmm. Three different contracts. Yeah. So, but Al was in trouble. He was beginning to be in deep trouble at that time. And by the, you know, when I finished the album, they were really uh, struggling. Yeah. So all of that work went down the drain and any mm. future work that I would, would, would produce. Yeah. So, you know, after a while, those kind of breaks kind of, you know, they get to you a little bit.
0: Right. Sure. That's sure. right place, wrong time. <laughs>
2: right. yeah I was very hopeful with Stax, really? you know they had everybody that that's some good music mm. I was anyway but uh that's what happened. I had a one year with a four year option contract for a one year option contract with Stacks. right and when the contract rolled around and it was time for them to pay me uh, to pick up the option, they weren't able to do so. Mm.
3: Yeah.
2: And that's the first time I uh, I got a fetal position and stayed there for about a week.
1: Mm, I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so
0: close. <laughs> well, you know, great songs have a way of, of cropping up again and again. And in 2006, rapper 50 Cent had a top 40 pop hit with Best Friend, which sampled your song Silly Wasn't I, that had been a hit for Valerie Simpson more than 30 years earlier. Have you been surprised... By the way, many of your songs are still being listened to and covered and rediscovered and appreciated so many years after you wrote them.
2: It gives you a feeling of such jubilation and hope and happiness that this is happening. Mm. I think when you're young and you're doing it, you don't think 50 years later it's going to be a life. It'll have a lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. And you never know. And I'm so happy about it.
1: Well... Joshie, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure for us. We thank you so much, and just very, very cool to to get the opportunity to do this.
2: I'm grinning from ear to ear.
1: Thank (laughs) you for considering me. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. While Songcraft will always be available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreoncom show. That's p a t r show. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards
0: and experiences as a valued supporter. Thanks for sharing some time with us. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters.